Good. We're here. I feel like, you know, it's kind of dumb, but it's like, are you here? Yeah, of course. You know, okay, good. We're here. All right. Here we are. <clears throat> Thanks for coming back. We end at 4.30, right? Okay, good. And I'll end really close to that. I encourage you to stay to the sweet end, not the bitter end. Um, but if you've got to leave early, I, it's okay. I, I understand. All right, so I want to momentarily slide into three major inner strengths that are related to building that unshakable core. Uh, just to remind you, I said there are kind of four major takeaways here. Cultivation, the general strength of strengths, the one that grows the rest of them, learning, and then calm, contentment, and confidence. And I'll get into some of what I mean by those umbrella terms. So that's where we're going. Um, first, I just wanted to know if there was maybe a question or so or comment that we can take as people 
arrive, and then I'll, I'll keep on going. Perfect. Right there? All right. How does EMDR relate to the link step in the learning process? So, <clears throat> first point, what I've tried to do with regard to the HEAL framework is pull together many, many factors that are supported in research or found in what other people do that promotes lasting growth, you know, durable, beneficial change. I don't feel like I've invented those things. It's more like I've just tried to pull them together. And often, uh, it's interesting, you, you, know, like you go out and you maybe you read a little neuroscience stuff, and then you go, oh, that's why when my grandmother did that, it made such a difference for me. Or that Tibetan Lama taught that. Oh, that's kind of the underlying embodied why of it. But to be clear, it's not that I've invented those things necessarily. So linking is normal. Uh, it's built into many formal modes of therapy and healing. It's uh, Linking is also natural. For example, when we're mindful of our pain, we are linking spacious, untroubled awareness to something that's troubling inside it. Or if we talk ourselves off the ledge, you know, that was then, this is now, my boss looks like my mother, she's not my mother, that was then, this is now, you know, that's a form of linking, right? Okay, so EMDR stands for, as many know, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a form of what's called bilateral stimulation. There are other forms of it as well, uh, in which essentially we're aware of something, let's say troubling, so that's the quote-unquote negative material, and then simultaneously we're, we're stimulating the two hemispheres of the brain sequentially, either by, for example, in the original method, moving our eyes back and forth rapidly like this, kind of replicates rapid eye movement, dream sleep, uh, or tapping, things like that. All right. So what do we have there structurally? We have the negative material, let's say, although, although people sometimes will use EMDR to install positive material, as you know. So we have the negative material, let's say, feeling a really re being really rejected in junior high school. While doing something that's relatively neutral, but neurologically oriented, stimulating the two sides of the brain. So we have there a linking, an associating of the negative material, being rejected in junior high school, say, maybe a really embarrassing moment, um, and <clears throat> something that's relatively neutral. Well, that itself is a form of linking. It's a kind of counter-conditioning. Now... So I, and I have found EMDR to be personally helpful, and I've known others who have found it to be helpful as well. So for me, that's an example of applying EMDR to the negative material. More generally, I think it's useful to associate not just something neutral, right? Uh, although it's more than neutral, it's neurologically disruptive in good ways to do this bilateral stimulation, but looking for something positive that's matched to it. 
which is a wonderful segue to my next topic, which involves, in part, matching resources to needs. So for me, I think it would be helpful in the EMDR sequence maybe, and this is, a, this is how they do it in general, how I would do it if I were working with people. Start with the negative, do the bilateral stimulation while being aware of the negative. The negative gradually kind of deconstructs, sort of gets disrupted, and then finish by installing the matched positive. Very often we pull weeds in the garden of the mind, but we don't replace them with flowers. And then the weeds come back. For me, it's very important to replace what we've released with something useful. So, as you can see up here, if, for example, we are um, releasing fear, anxiety, say, or a sense of helplessness or anger, which I think of as three major indicators of threat. Fear, anger, helplessness. They don't only relate to safety issues, but they're major signals of safety issue. Uh, If we've released, say, some of that anxiety or some of that irritation or the sense of immobilization and helplessness, what are we going to replace it with? It's really important to think about. Can we replace helplessness with feelings of agency, efficacy, being more like a hammer and less like a nail? Can we replace anxiety with feeling protected or relaxing and calming? Can we replace anger with an internal sense of peacefulness, right? In a way that's really, really matched. So that's the general idea. You see that idea of matching resources to the issue and um, both to grow the resource around the issue without even being aware of the negative material or in forms of linking, uh, including do-it-yourself linking, bringing to bear the experience of the resource into direct contact with the negative material it's matched to. General idea. And... Um, just by the way, as a detail, is it cold in here? Seems no. It's hot in here. Great. Jet lag. It's two in the morning. <laughs> you didn't know it was two in the morning? It's two in the morning. No, it's probably not two. It's more like 10 o'clock at night. But anyway. Okay. So, I'm going to make two points here. Whoops. First point <clears throat> is that to use an example, what if we're worried about something? Maybe we're anxious about a health concern. Or maybe we're worried about our child. Gratitude is nice, but it doesn't address the anxiety. Getting some kind of uh, social supply that's like a praise from another person. That's nice, but it doesn't address the anxiety. It's a different system. So I find as a general roadmap, not to overdo it, but as a useful diagnostic structure, it helps to locate the issue in one of these three systems, if it fits. Certain issues or combinations, like loss of a loved one, 
really can hit all three systems because there's the loss of connection. Also, there's a loss of reward, of enjoyment, you know, uh, including prosperity. If we lose a loved one sometimes, like a mate, and then also it creates a safety issue because when you lose a loved one, it exposes us to all kinds of risks and threats in the world. So it's a three for one. Great, thank you. Which also means, of course, that um, any one uh, resource experiences in any one of these systems can be helpful. To go the other way, though, about love, it's to realize that love is the multivitamin. It's the universal medicine because experiences of love, broadly defined, caring, concern, compassion, kindness, flowing in or flowing out, the expressing of lovingness feeds us much as the receiving of lovingness. Good news. Love is, it helps meet our needs for connection. Love, broadly defined, is very rewarding and satisfying. And love is a primal signal of safety. It's reassuring, like a child who wants to connect with the attachment figure. So if all else fails, love, which is, I think, one reason why, among others, the great teachers again and again and again emphasize love. Even in the Buddhist tradition, interestingly, uh, recent scholarship has suggested that uh, the Buddha laid out a path of love as a wholly sufficient liberation, as a wholly sufficient path of practice when fully perfected. You know, there's a kind of take on Buddhism that it's sort of mindfulness oriented and heady, and you know, definitely it has a lot of. Um, um, strengths in that department, and also, seemingly, in what the Buddha himself taught, he really did emphasize, particularly as his teaching matured, uh, he really did emphasize the heart. Uh, Those who came after him got overly technical, then centuries later, the Mahayana development in Tibet and beyond started refocusing on the heart, compassion and love and so forth, but the Buddha himself seems well to have taught that, that love is really central as a path of practice. And um, as I was saying to people at the break, uh, one of the takeaways for me from a meditation retreat was were four words that have been really useful to me. Cling less, love more. And it seems like pretty good advice. Okay. okay, so structure so far, what we're doing, as kind of a takeaway. First... It helps to look for opportunities again and again and again to take in these kind of experiences up here. Both to grow those resources and to have the felt sense in the moment of a sufficiency of needs met. In so doing, through repeatedly internalizing resources like are listed up here, we, we build up resources inside ourselves and we increasingly create that kind of unconditional, resilient well-being inside us that we take with us wherever we go. That's useful. Second key takeaway here, I think, is when you consider key issues in your life, right? In addition to just looking for beneficial experiences in general and being opportunistic and taking in what you can, you know, plucking the low-hanging fruit, given a challenge outside you these days 
or a long-standing tendency you're still grappling with, old feelings of being neglected, uh, feelings of inadequacy, um, you know, ten- tendencies toward anxiety or tendencies perhaps toward anger, whatever that challenge might be. If you think of kind of a leading challenge in your life these days, what, if it were more present in your mind, would really help? That then identifies a key resource to look to be growing these days. If, if I were to really suggest, like, if you just kind of take away from this workshop, a key takeaway, for me it would be three things, basically. One, as you go through your day, as we go through our day, look for those opportunities a handful of times every day to slow down and take in the good. Whatever it might be. Connection with another person, uh, a feeling of relief, uh, a sense of your own goodness, the beauty around you, maybe some wisdom landing, wise view landing. Half a dozen times a day. You know, slow it down for half a minute or less, typically, and take it in. And developing that as a habit, a fundamental keystone habit, it's sometimes described. A leading habit. A habit of internalizing beneficial experiences over the course of the day. And looking for opportunities to do so. That alone makes a big shift. A second suggestion I would offer, and I do this myself, is know what are your one, two, three strengths you're trying to grow these days. What are you developing these days? It helps to kind of know what's the leading candidate. You know, what's, what's the one thing you're kind of focused on these days to develop in yourself? What's a, what's a high value inner resource that um, you can look for opportunities to experience and then when you're experiencing it, prioritize it for internalization. Maybe it's a greater sense of patience. Maybe it's a greater commitment to some health practice. Maybe it's a subtle spiritual uh, awareness or feeling of interconnectedness with everything. Uh, Maybe it's feeling of worth, that you're a lovable, good person and you don't have to be a saint to be worthy of love. What is it? It's like we all have scurvy of one kind or another. What's your vitamin C? Right? That's really useful. That's a second suggestion. And then if you know it, you're growing. You know, then it tends to organize your day and you look for opportunities to experience it and internalize it. And then the third suggestion is, <clears throat> you know, for at least a few minutes every day, really, really go deep green. In other words, really marinate in the green zone of feeling safe enough, satisfied enough, and connected enough so your mind and body come to rest and craving falls away. Craving diminishes. Sense of coming home. I'm going to do this more with you as a practice. Fear not. Um, Where you just land and like, the war's over. I can lower my guard. Genuinely. Authentically, there's enough here and now. It's like we're all like scared monkeys, you know, coming to peace, coming to ease. You know, there's some 
there's some languaging like, you know, the Buddha talks about the mind has found its way to ease. You know. Okay. That resetting to green, spending a few minutes, maybe just before bed, maybe over the course of a day at a meal. That's really, really useful to do. Marinating for at least a few minutes a day in deep green. Suggestions. In this way, we bring a kind of embodied kindness to ourselves that takes into account our animal nature and including the evolution of our own brain. So you may be aware of my really dorky but somewhat memorable way to summarize, you know, growing resources for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Whenever you can, look for opportunities, I think, to pet the lizard. Reptilian, scared brainstem, detail. As we go back down the brain, it's called the neuroaxis, go back down, we go back in time, and neuroplasticity decreases. And one of the takeaways from that is that if we're grappling with issues of fear or safety, including trauma, we need a lot of repetition of beneficial experiences. The inner lizard needs a lot, a lot of petting. It's also important routinely, ready for it, feed the mouse. Look for many opportunities to really enjoy and savor and take in experiences of reward, of goal attainment, of success, of wholesome pleasure, uh, of kind of sensual, healthy well-being. Feed the mouse. And I had a teacher uh, titled a book at one point, The Eating Gorilla Comes in Peace. It's when we're fed deep down in many ways, that um, our drivenness, our grasping, our chasing can pass away. And then, of course, uh, maybe most important of all, hug the monkey. Look for those opportunities many, many times a day to feel cared about, especially if your primary wound, as mine was as a kid, is in this system. Relationship issues, feeling left out, feeling unseen, being lonely, inadequate. Hug the monkey. Can you see the fourth monkey up there? Little buddy. (laughs) Hug the monkey. Okay. All right. So that's kind of a framework. Got it? Inside that framework, I want to explore key resources for each one of these systems. Safety, satisfaction, and connection. There are other resources, obviously, than the ones we're going to explore in the next couple, two and a half hours or so. But these are definitely really central. Okay so far? Okay. So, safety. I want to do two practices with you related to um, building up inner resources to be safe and to feel safe. And to be clear, feeling safe is no replacement for actually being safe. On the other hand, if you think about it, there are two mistakes we can make and certainly two kinds of mistakes our ancestors could make. One kind of mistake is thinking that there's a tiger in the bushes about to get you, but actually there's no tiger at all. A second kind of mistake is thinking that everything's fine 
but actually there's a tiger getting ready to pounce. What's the cost of the first mistake? Needless anxiety. Maybe you get an ulcer. Bummer, but all right. What's the cost of the second mistake? No mistakes forever, right? So we are designed to make the first mistake hundreds of times to avoid making the second mistake ever once. In effect, we are designed biologically to have paper tiger paranoia in which we overestimate threats and underestimate our resources for dealing with them. That's kind of our template. Now, of course, some people, unfortunately, underestimate threat and they need to get better at really seeing threats, especially long-term threats, like obviously global climate change. That's a long-term threat. It's important to really zero in on that. But on the whole, we tend to operate as if the world is threat level orange when in fact it's more like yellow or chartreuse or green. So given that, it's important to build up resources inside to be actually safe. But in particular, I think, it's to let ourselves feel as safe as we truly can afford to feel, as safe as we reasonably can. So I want to explore with you two um, practices here related to this that I think are very central. They're like key skills and capabilities. And so we're going to do an experiential practice in a moment. Okay? Um, By the way, if you start feeling sleepy post-lunch, it's okay to stand up. Uh, If somebody starts snoring, you know, I think it's okay to gently, respectfully tap their foot, maybe. Just knowing that that horrible thing might occur tends to keep people awake. But anyway. Okay. So heart rate variability. Some of you already know about it. Here's a quick summary. So the heart is beating. Good. And um, let's say the heart is beating 60 times a minute. So averaging one second per beat. But the actual interval from beat to beat is varying and changing. And interestingly, research shows that the greater the variability relatively speaking, and the um, smoothness of the changes in the interval between the heartbeats is actually a marker of cardiovascular health and capacity to recover from things happening in the cardiovascular system. And in general, heart rate variability um, is certainly a marker of, if not also a cause of, other forms of physical health like a strong immune system and general sense of well-being. A lot because heart rate variability indicates the degree to which the heart slows, the heart rate slows, as we exhale, which is a marker of the strength of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. We have these two fundamental wings of the autonomic nervous system, which is that branch of the nervous system that is regulatory, helps us walk evenly over uneven ground, as it were. The sympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system um, is our, uh, speeds us up. And it's our response to opportunity. It's also our response to danger. And as we inhale the heart rate tends to increase because the sympathetic wing of the nervous system is very involved with inhalation. As we exhale, 
The other branch of this uh, autonomic nervous system, uh, the parasympathetic branch, helps the heart rate slow. And these two branches of the autonomic nervous system are like the gas pedal and the brakes. Sympathetic branch is associated with fight or flight. Parasympathetic branch sometimes is described as rest and digest. Although extreme parasympathetic activation is associated with freezing or the human equivalent in other animals of playing dead. A sense of immobilization, like you can't respond, you're frozen. So uh, there's a place of balance. The key distinction between healthy sympathetic activation or healthy parasympathetic activation is positive emotion. It's okay to rev up as long as positive emotion is involved. That's not particularly stressful. It's when revving up becomes associated with frustration or anger or fear as we flee in panic, then we're starting to accumulate allostatic load from stress. It's okay to be enthusiastic. In other words, sympathetic activation with positive emotion is enthusiasm. Sympathetic nervous system activation with negative emotion is stress. Flip the other way, parasympathetic activation with feelings of ease, peacefulness, tranquility, and well-being, that's wonderful. Excessive parasympathetic activation with a sense of being immobilized, terrorized, or numb, that's not good for us. So So the key distinction isn't which branch of the autonomic nervous system activates, but, but the emotion that travels with it. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> there are ways to train in improving heart rate variability. HeartMath is an organization that's really developed this. Other people have worked with it as well. Sometimes it's useful to use these little devices connected to your smartphone and your earlobe or your finger, finger cuff that can be essentially a form of biofeedback. The essence of the process is simply to, as you train in this, to extend the length of the exhalation. That slows the heart rate and strengthens what's called parasympathetic tone. It's helpful as well to get a sense of sensation in the heart area. And it's also helpful to bring to mind heartfelt feelings. This is a way to really train the visceral core, the heart and the lungs, that are really fundamental to staying in a good place as we deal with a changing world. So that's the explanation part. Want to try it? Here we go. So, and uh, I'm going to go through this, take a little pause, and then slide into the next practice because they kind of fit together. So to start here, and again, like all our practices, we're going to be doing something and then aware of doing it and what happens and trying to internalize the benefits of what we're doing. All right. So beginning, help yourself relax and see if you can find that place in which you're both increasingly tranquil while also being alert. It can help to sit up straight, you know, to find a posture that's, that's really comfortable, 
while also letting yourself relax. Letting your feet relax. Your hands. Your diaphragm under your rib cage. your jaw muscles, your tongue. Your eyes, your forehead, relaxing. One of the major markers in research for training in mindfulness is how rapidly can people drop into a relaxed state. So it's not about performance evaluation here, it's more about just really appreciating that it's important to be able to settle back down and increase the capability to drop into a place of calm. being relaxed, for a little bit of time here, experiment with deliberately extending your exhalations. A way to help yourself, if you like, is to count so that your exhalation is at least as long as your inhalation, if not even twice as long, such as deliberately for at least a few breaths. Inhaling, two, three. Exhaling, two, three, four, five, six. Or some form of counting that works for you. And of course, if there's anything uncomfortable or alarming about engaging your breath in this way, uh, don't worry about it. No need to do it. But it's an interesting thing to explore to deliberately make the exhalation longer.
notice what happens in your state of being, even over the course of a single breath or two, when you make the exhalations longer. And anytime you like, you can let your rate of breathing be more natural and unregulated, just letting the breath soften and be whatever it is. As you breathe here, being aware of sensations around your heart area, the center of your chest. And if you like, you can bring in more heartfelt feeling. Feeling cared about, feeling caring. Perhaps a sense of lovingness flowing in through the heart area, flowing out through the heart area. You might visualize different colors of light, perhaps, coming into your heart as you inhale, releasing, expressing from your heart as you exhale. Or if all that just seems too complicated, just resting with awareness of sensation around your heart while being aware of beings you love or who love you. Allowing your body to become increasingly tranquil, 
allowing your mind to become increasingly quiet. Tranquil. in your own way, finding a warm-hearted peacefulness. yourself over to this experience, allowing it to sink in and spread inside you. loving peacefulness. If you like, as a last thing, as a bit of a bonus, and only do this if it's useful, you might get a sense of this warm-hearted peacefulness, what it feels like, and imagine what it would be like to come from this warm-hearted peacefulness in situations or interactions or relationships that are challenging for you. It's a kind of linking. Emphasizing the feeling of warm-hearted peacefulness. But if it's helpful, getting a sense off to the side of awareness of what it would be like to be in this way in those more challenging situations.
in effect associating a way of being that's valuable, warm-hearted peacefulness, to situations that are challenging. Okay, finishing up. It's okay to stay tranquil. Maybe opening your eyes for a moment, maybe stretching for a moment. slide into the next little practice here for about 10 or 15 minutes and then I'll take another break. Okay? So I'm going to give you a little bit of information while you stay tranquil and warm-hearted. I'll, I'll talk about things later, but I want to keep going experientially here, but definitely we'll talk about it later for sure. Um... Most of the information coming into our brains comes from the inside of us. Because first and foremost, the nervous system, the master regulator of the body, needs to know how the body is doing. Most of the time, the information coming up into the brain from the body is like the calls of a night watchman, all is well. There is enough air to breathe. The heart is still beating. Digestion's occurring, uh, going on being, going on living. And yet, because that's usually what is being told to our brain, we habituate to it, and we don't hear it anymore. It's like that night watchman keeps saying it, but we're not tracking it. And meanwhile, we're looking around us for all those paper tigers. It's very, very helpful especially if there's any history of anxiety or issue of anxiety, to come into the present and recognize when it's true, as it usually is, that the body is basically all right, right now, and now, and now. It may not have been all right in the past, genuinely. It may not be basically all right in the future. There might be a shocking loss, overwhelming pain, terrible injury. Okay. And to the extent it's true, and it usually, for most people, is true, that the body is basically all right now and now. 
So in this practice, we're going to focus on listening to the night watchman, listening to the heart telling the brain that it's still beating, listening to the lungs telling the brain that there's enough air to breathe, that there's an ongoingness of being, so that that needless anxiety can fall away. Most anxiety is anticipatory. It's about a future. Okay, we want to be able to track real threats. And meanwhile, we, we don't need to feel any more anxious than is useful. And most of the time now, in now, there's no basis for the anxiety. There might be good reason for it in the future, but there is no basis now. Coming into the now and the visceral signals of the body that it, you're okay, really, really helpful. So, let's do this practice. And I find much as being able to calm and establish that visceral core of warm-hearted peacefulness is really useful. Being able to drop into, I'm all right now, and the reassurance of that and the relief of that and the letting go of unnecessary anxiety is really, really useful. So let's grow this muscle. Let's grow this resource through experiencing it and internalizing the sense of being basically all right, right now. Okay? Let's begin. Being aware of the ongoingness of breathing. And bringing yourself into the present and staying in the present. Still breathing, still living. What a relief. Now. the fact continuously of living of being basically alright there may be some pain in the body there may be worries hovering around the mind and being aware of the fact of basic alrightness of the body Taking the ongoing all-rightness of the body as your object of meditation. And as you recognize basic all rightness, and you have the feeling of it, not just the idea of it, the feeling of it, be mindful of helping unnecessary anxiety fall away. 
you might be able to find feelings of relief, reassurance, even joy. Ongoing all rightness. It might help to enrich the experience to have soft thoughts like, I'm okay. Still okay. Wow, still okay. Or your version of those. can be mindful of unnecessary guarding or bracing, falling away. You can recognize that you can both feel all right and be aware of potential threats or dangers. Feeling increasingly undisturbed and undefended. Being all right, right now.
it can be surprisingly difficult to stay in the present, in the experience of what is true, that your body is basically all right. Very interesting. And it's useful to help ourselves stabilize when it's true, feeling basically all right, needless anxiety, defending, falling away. Finishing up. In a moment, we'll move into our break, and you might find it's interesting to be mindful as you, in a moment, not yet, maybe stand up, maybe walk across the room, maybe interact with other people that it's actually possible to recognize, as long as it's true, and it usually is true, ongoing all rightness. Um, The Buddha has this line, give no person cause to fear you. Maybe give them cause to know that they won't get dessert unless they eat their broccoli first or something like that. But that's really different from being threatening. The the, uh, opposite is also true. Give oneself no cause to fear unless there's actually a reason for it. And thinking about what it's actually like. We carry such a load of feeling threatened, most of us. It's way out of proportion to the actual threats or risks, particularly given our resources for managing you know, the threats or risks that are coming at us. And what is it like a lot to just lay that burden down and to help ourselves feel increasingly open and soft in the front um, as we move through life. Feeling increasingly uncowed, unbowed, and unafraid as we deal with the real life that we have. That's a wonderful, useful experience. It can be almost ecstatic the relief of it, and as we feel less threatened ourselves, we become less of a needless threat to other people as well. Okay, so let's have our break. I'm happy to talk with people during the break. There were a few people who didn't get to me at lunch. How about coming back um, in uh, 20 minutes? So 25 after 3, and then we'll do two really, really cool things before we wrap up at 4.30. See you then, 20 after 3.
You know, the interesting thing, too, is that I'm studying the Enneagram and the Bible.
right? Satisfaction or bust? All right. So, quick question or comment so far about calming the visceral core or noticing that you're actually all right right now and now? Question, comment so far. Yeah, good. So, um, would you entertain a question that's more targeted toward overarching themes, or should I wait on that? Oh, I'll entertain it. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be entertained by it. I'm kidding, but no, sure. Yeah, and I'll. Yeah. Okay. So, I've been thinking a lot about the various resources and themes, and I say I'm, my name is Philip, and I am a professor, and I train special education teachers and all levels, doctoral, master, and also undergrad. I have a doctoral student right now who's doing her thesis on the development of resilience and self-determination in uh, specific learning disabled children. Mm -hmm. But my question is sort of across disability areas, sensorial, emotional, behavioral, cognitive, Mm. linguistic, and maybe even a larger, how do you work with children and adults with or without disability in training? What specific techniques or strategies would you suggest? And any references would be very useful also. I know that's a three-hour question. No, it's great. Well, first of all, respect, truly given, for what you do and what you help other people to do. And also, just for me, real respect for people dealing with um, disability. And um, I want to you know, be respectful as well in just the language, terminology I'm using. Uh, so couple things here. <clears throat> First, as a general principle, I think that if we just keep in mind as teachers, as parents, as coaches, supervisors, uh, psychotherapists, maybe we're in a healthcare environment, maybe we're in a public policy environment. If we keep in mind this fundamental question, what's the brain doing with this experience? Is it leaving any lasting value behind? That will tend to focus us again and again and again on increasing installation and increasing average rate of learning, average rate of gain, average rate of growth, and healing. Healing is a form of learning. Release. Disengaging from bad habits and other forms of release are forms of healing and, and learning. So if we focus on that, Again and again and again, I think that's really useful. And um, it's, it's, it's so interesting how rapidly we lose focus on internalization. I think there's some kind of funny universal learning disability that moves us away from it. And I think partly because it's cognitively demanding to pay attention to process inside yourself and to sustain both a focus 
to, su- to sustain an experience and metacognitively to sustain a focus on an experience, to heighten internalization, and then be aware of how it's going when you do that, that's pretty demanding. And, but as a result, we tend to lose focus on the installation necessary second step of learning. So that would be my first suggestion in, as a general statement that would really, I think, increase gain from intervention across the board, especially for the two-thirds or so of the population that either gains a little or nothing at all, typically. The dirty little secret in MBSR trainings or uh, therapy or interventions of different kinds is that uh, some people get a lot and most people get middling to zero results. So what can we learn from the super learners, the ones who get a lot from therapy or a lot from coaching or a lot from self-compassion training or human resources training and stress management or what what have you, multicultural awareness? What can we learn from the people who grow a lot and then generalize it to everybody else? I think that's a really useful thing in general. Second, with children, I work with children a ton, a lot of my history, and um, uh, I think it's really useful with kids to look for those opportunities in the flow of their day and then especially up to about age 14. So they'll still put up with some psychobabble maybe before you put them to bed. Um, Over the course of their day and at special moments to slow it down and help the good land. Help learning land. Help it sink in. I find that's really, really important. So among other things, I've known parents who at the end of the day, and, and again, a lot of these I, didn't, I did not invent. You know, I'm trying to focus on why they work and why it's important to keep doing them. Take an extra minute or two or three with a kid before you put that child to bed to just reflect on what might be beneficial uh, as an experience that's available in the moment or maybe looking back over the day, what were the good things that happened, and then especially make sure that the recognition of the good facts becomes a good experience. It's not just, a lot of people do gratitude practice. They know it intellectually. They don't feel grateful. People do compassion practice or whatever. They don't really feel it. So it's one thing to remember for a child, let's say, that they had a nice time with friends at lunch, uh, it's another thing to actually feel befriended by those other kids at lunch. So that, that's really important. And also with children to think about what's their vitamin C these days. For a child, especially a child grappling with disability, what are some key resources, resource experiences that are matched to the particular issue? So then over the course of the day, we look for opportunities to have and internalize them And if we're doing this kind of special moment practice, maybe at the end of the lunch period at school or at the end of the day at school or at the end of a resource session, you know, working with a particular child or group of kids or maybe just before bed if you're putting a child to sleep uh, or uh, when the child comes home from school or the parent comes home from work at those special moments, it can be really helpful to identify what key resource is a high priority to, for the child to experience and internalize that's matched to the particular issue? So that's useful. And then with regard to disability, um, I think different things happen with it, but very often I think that kind of by definition, 
it's really important to look for the resource of the experience of agency or self-efficacy as, as your doctoral student is focused on. Because if you think about it, so much of what's baked into disability and or baked into trauma, and I'm not equating the two, sometimes they do go together, unfortunately, is um, a lack of capacity or limitation in capacity to influence things. And we, uh, as part of the, as an example of the negativity bias of the brain, we are very vulnerable to the acquisition of helplessness, learned helplessness. As Martin Seligman and others have researched, we're very vulnerable. Just a few experiences, or just one, of entrapment and defeat, painful entrapment and defeat, um, powerlessness, can train the person or the non-human animal, the dog, let's say, into a sense of futility and, why bother? And that may be adaptive in the wild. People wonder why is learned helplessness useful for evolution? I mean, because you kind of give up trying to make something happen, including socially in primate bands or human bands, because that reduces your exposure to certain threats. On the one hand, it's depressing and miserable, but maybe that sense of defeat and futility helps you live to see the sunrise the next day. That said, for humans, um, learned helplessness is right on the slippery slope to clinical depression. A lot of research shows that. And because we're so vulnerable to the acquisition of helplessness, when you know our capacities are limited or... Uh, in some way, it's especially important, in my view, to look for experiences of agency, efficacy, you know, being the chooser, being able to decide, being able to determine things, to make things happen, to be the cue ball rather than the eight ball, and then again and again and again and again and again, often in domains outside of the area of limitation, right? Um, again and again and again, internalize those wholesome beneficial experiences of capability, efficacy, being a cause rather than an effect. That doesn't mean denying the degree to which we're at the effect of so many things, and that's just the way it is. So many influences, so many factors um, come at us, and that's just the truth. That said, it's really important to keep zeroing in on uh, who is it, Viktor Frankl? who talked about that most fundamental of human freedoms, the freedom to choose the way we will respond to our circumstances, including limitations of capability or or function, again and again and again. And um, standing up for, I think I said this a bit earlier, that kind of space of freedom inside, that sanctuary, I think of it as sacred, sacred inner core, inside of which I'm free. My body may not be free. I may not have capacity. My circumstances may be very constrained. Things may have happened in the past that I cannot undo that are still consequential today. And inside this temple, inside my mind, inside my being, there's a fundamental freedom I hold on to. Maybe one more person, then we're going to keep going to satisfaction. Oh, how do I choose? And oh no, what am I going to do? So I'm going to close my... No, I'm not. All right, so what am I... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. How about you? Okay. 
It was random. It, it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. Okay, and then we'll keep going. Hey, thank you, Rick. Um, <clears throat> I came today because of the topic of resilience, and I've, it's lovely to get all of the tools. Um, re- anyway, but what, I, what I've been grappling with for many years, and I would like your input about, is what makes one person more resilient than the other. You said there, at the beginning that there were about a third of people that there was DNA it was in the DNA to not be so resilient. Like one person gets through a serious trauma and gets through it, and the other person n- leads to addiction. That's my question. What, what, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Okay, so to just kind of restate it, it's not so much one-third of the population and versus two-thirds. It's more like if you look at research on psychological characteristics, the classic nature-nurture, question. You start sorting it out, and especially if you take into account the fact that identical twin studies are usually on kids in middle class or upper middle class environments. So that the impact of nurture, which includes the impact of events in the world, is artificially restricted. When you take that into into account, and then you go back into those twin studies, as a generalization, about a third of the variation in the population of various psychological attributes of one kind or another, including resilience, seem heritable, baked into our DNA, innate. But roughly two-thirds of the variation in the population of various psychological attributes, including happiness or depression or addiction or not, is due to non-heritable factors, everything else, which includes what happens to us and what we do about it. So that's kind of what I was getting at. So for me, um, you know, kind of practical scruffy guy in my way, uh, uh, I'm really interested in that two-thirds where there's opportunity. All right? Which includes the two-thirds of how we develop resources to cope with the one-third we're stuck with, in effect. Right? Right? So, so it's certainly true that, and here's another key thing now, is that the nature of research is that it often overgeneralizes to everybody in the population a finding that's essentially about the average. You can generalize to every molecule of water, but you can't generalize to every human. So the point is, the way I said it, a third or so of the variation in the population has to do with heritable factors, quote-unquote innate, but that... And that suggests that a randomly selected individual from the population, roughly about a third of who they are is baked into their DNA at conception. We won't do the visuals on that, don't worry. But anyway, but the other two-thirds is acquired. But that's on the, tip, on the average. For some people, what shapes their life is overwhelmingly innate. See? See? Or other people, sometimes what shapes their life is overwhelmingly acquired, such as the good fortune of their birth, their class. Um, Where little detail. Kids from uh, lower economic... Kids from the lower fifth of economic status who have upper fifth as, you know, SAT scores entering college 
have a lower graduation rate than kids entering the same college from the upper fifth economically, but the lower fifth in terms of DNA. I mean, I mean, SAT, SAT. <laughs> Jet lag, alert, right? Obvious. So, so the point is, some people, their genetics really, it's lot, it has a lot more than just one-third influence with regard to whatever that particular thing is. So maybe that was like overly technical or something, but it's a useful, really useful way to understand what the research is and also to understand what's happened. Make sense. So for me to really fundamentalize it, I think that um, our temperament, our constitution, our genetics really definitely affect how resilient we are. Absolutely. It's also true that we can acquire vulnerabilities. We can acquire cracks in our innate resilience through trauma and events and mistreatment, including systematic oppression, prejudice, discrimination, poverty. Uh, That's true. It's also true, and I think there's so many examples of this, and I'll finish on this point, of people who clearly in their history uh, were really dealt a super tough hand, including genetically, including genetic temperamental things like prone to depression, prone to anxiety, just uh, maybe cognitive impairments of various kinds, who with, usually it's three things, two things for sure, maybe a third, sustained effort on their own part. Sustained effort on their own part and second, support from other people. We're really, really able to develop and reacquire high levels of resilience, and other inner capabilities over time. Effort, support, and maybe the X factor of grace. And I'll leave it at that. Okay? You guys are great. Okay. Satisfaction? So we're going to finish strong here. Coach Rick, we're going to get to the top of this mountain. So I want to explore two fundamental resources for satisfaction. I think of these as sort of like muscles or competencies, skills that we want to grow. One is the ability to um, drop into the state of gratitude and gladness and then over time acquire more and more a trait of gratitude and gladness and attitude of gratitude. And then I'm going to use that as a segue into a fundamental experience of contentment and enoughness already. So we're going to do this experientially. Okay? So let's give it a whirl. I said earlier that we'd come back to gratitude and gladness. Here we are. So first of all, as a kind of meditation here, we're going to take gratitude as our object of attention. What are some of the things that you are thankful for? that you've received. One of the barriers to gratitude is that it forces us to uh, be vulnerable and to realize that we depend upon many things that are given to us. So being brave enough to be dependent, being courageous enough to be vulnerable, to receive,
So being aware of some of the many things you've been given. And gently helping this recognizing to become a growing feeling or experience of gratitude or related feelings of thankfulness, appreciation. It can be useful to be aware of many things and uh, that are in prompts for you, people who've given you things, who went out of their way for you. Privilege, good fortune. Awareness of so much effort and work by others throughout history that we draw upon. Who invented the paperclip? (laughs) Being glad about having a life today that we have access to things like fresh water, most of us at least, quite easily. Perhaps gratitude for a human body, a human birth, life, the universe. And using these reflections to strengthen a sense of gratitude. Taking gratitude as your object of meditation. Enriching and absorbing this experience by helping it be big, even intense in your mind. When we're aware of so many things we've received, it's natural to feel a kind of awestruck gratitude.
being aware of what feels rewarding about gratitude or related feelings, what's enjoyable about it, what's meaningful to you about gratitude. This will help it weave its way into your nervous system. Also being aware of things you're glad about. Gratitude is about being given a gift, in effect. And there are many things to be glad about that don't exactly fit gratitude. Glad about good events in your life. Happy about good times with friends. Helping the knowledge of good things in your past or your present helping the knowledge of that become a growing sense of gladness inside. Including, if it's meaningful to you, to paraphrase the Buddha, finding gladness about your goodness. Being glad about the efforts you've been making in your own practice, the fruits of them even if imperfect, being glad about the recognition of your own good heart. Maybe gladness about good fortune of others, happy for them. As the Dalai Lama put it, if you can be happy that others are happy, you can always be happy, because there's always somebody somewhere who's happy. Letting yourself be happy to the extent that's real for you. Other feelings may be flying around, that's okay. But 
letting yourself be grateful and glad. Happiness is skillful means. Opens the heart, strengthens the body, draws us into love for others. It's okay to let yourself feel good. In Buddhist meditation training, one of the five factors of deep concentration is joy. Happiness, contentment, a pleasurable tranquility. It's a skillful means. and let yourself have it. And then building on what we've done here, segueing into a meditation on contentment, the sense of enoughness already, having kind of primed or nurtured the nervous system with gratitude and gladness. Come into the now with a sense of the fullness of the present moment. And see if you can increasingly focus on a sense of contentment enough already with a falling away of drivenness and discontent, a falling away of disappointment, frustration. It's fine to wish for more. It's nice and so much already. Enough already. What is it like to receive the next moment feeling already full?
gently encouraging any grasping or drivenness to fall away and seeing what it's like to take contentment as your object of meditation. Taking a final minute to finish up here, it can be helpful to be aware of the feeling of grasping, the feeling of chasing rewards, the feeling of drivenness, you know, the habit of discontent. And on the other hand, what it feels like to abide, present, awake, feeling already full. There's enough already. Contented. So in a moment I'll see if there's a question or comment. And But first I'd like to just say that to acknowledge what's true, these are brief practices. And um, it, it's okay if, if it's hard to stabilize a key experience. 
uh, is okay. But with practice, we start getting a sense of, okay, that's a useful factor to mobilize inside my mind. And as I get better at mobilizing and stabilizing that state of being, I can then internalize that to develop it more and more as a trait, which then increasingly helps me activate it as a state, which then enables me to reinforce it as a trait. And I've done retreats or other things where, I mean, we're just spending 45 minutes at a time, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, focused on something like contentment or being all right or being at ease. And, you know, it takes time to develop these. That said... I, I come up out of the human potential movement in the scruffy 70s and um, 60s, the tail end, and I just think, yeah, let's go for it anyway. Okay. So any comment or question so far? Right there? Great. If you keep your hand up, they'll find you. Great. Thank you. So when you asked the question, what does it feel like to enter the next moment being already full? Yeah. Um, I feel felt like kind of immediately like that means there's a limit, limitless well uh-huh. and that makes it necessary to pour that feeling out to the world mm. because it just keeps coming, you know? Yeah. So it it seemed to me when you mentioned, you know, you're saying it, there's no need to grasp or chase after anything. There's also no need to then expect or use others you can just continue to give them the contentment that you have a wellspring of wow it just felt like it just had to come out when you asked that oh thank you that's just a beautiful thing so thank you for the oh thank you yeah Mm, yeah that's great okay good right there please great Uh, thank you for your teachings uh, so far um Usually, um, I feel pretty content and happy. Uh, question I had is, how do you not get affected by others' emotions, you know, relationships that you have, work, home? That is something that I found difficult. Uh, and others' mood affecting your... Yeah, uh, difficult. sure. Oh, yeah. Well, um, thank goodness we're affected by others. <laughs> right? Otherwise, it would be like, I don't know ants or crabs or something but they're affected to some extent but so briefly um, I think some people could really be benefited by being more affected by other people you know right truly in a in a good way right uh, more open more relational you know more uh, in a healthy way perturbed and disturbed by the suffering of others on the other hand I think there are many people who are uh, overly affected in a sense that leads to their their suffering. And sometimes when we're so affected by others, we're, we're unable to be helpful to them, let alone find our footing to stand up for ourselves. So I think it's helpful to recognize wh- where's the issue mainly, you know, and then grow resources that would help. So for people that are maybe, their, their boundaries are fuzzier or they're, they're stirred up, uh, they're different classic trainings about that and interestingly very often as people know who've come up to me during the break this recurring theme of the balance of compassion and equanimity has come up again and again and um, so how do we maintain our equanimity while also being related to other people 
Or to put it a little differently, how do we maintain our compassion for others or while also asserting ourselves as need be? That's another example of this intersection of these two. And with regard to uh, others affecting us, um, there are different things a person can do. One is to really stabilize a strong uh, sense of interoception. You know, as a physician, you know what I'm talking about, that, that capacity to be aware of the internal state of the body. If we're able to, as it were, turn up the volume of the sense of the internal sensations of breathing or the sense of the cool air coming in, warm air going out, or the placement of the joints and so forth, uh, or our gut feelings, etc., that increases uh, activation of internal maps or representations, including a part of the brain, you know, the insula, that's tracking our internal state. And therefore, that tends to dial down, in effect, the intensity of the stimuli coming at us from other people. So, short version is, tune into your own breathing. You know, tune into the ongoing sense of being. Uh, You know, uh, I I use the image of being like a deeply rooted tree through which the winds of the others are blowing. And actually, fences make for good neighbors, as the parable has it, the proverb has it, rather, that as we deepen our sense of rootedness ourselves, we become more open to other people, more able to tolerate intensity, including anger and other things, you know, flying at us. So I, I find that's really helpful, finishing compassion for the other, and if, is helps us not feel so flooded, because compassion involves some self-awareness. You know, it's my caring for you, so it brings that up. And last, just kind of getting that... Um, it's like we're all we're all eddies in the stream. We're all eddies, swirling patterns, organizing out of chaos in a sense, ordering and then gradually dispersing over different time scales. And so, in effect, to, we're we're ripples. We're ripples in the stream of reality. And alongside us are these other ripples. And for me, you know, kind of practice a lot is about being both relational with that other ripple and caring toward them while also recognizing that the causes and conditions upstream that are leading to that rippling are distinct from the causes and conditions of one, one's own. Um, and, uh, you know, I have an internal saying, you know, love the ripple, be the river. <laughs> you know, flowing through the banks of unconditionality. And uh, uh, that recognition that what's causing that other person to do that is vast. So many factors have led them to do what they're doing. That helps us take it less personally and to be less activated around it and therefore freer and more resourceful in ourselves for how we deal with it. I'm not saying that's a complete list, but that's definitely on my pre-flight checklist that I use. Okay. I swear I'm going to do confidence. All right, ready? We're going to have some confidence here. What do I mean by that? All right. So, and I'll happily stick you stick around. We're going to finish at about four thirty. So, I want to talk about the sense of worth. And what? <laughs> Finally, <laughs> curse you, Steve Jobs. No, just kidding. Okay, so it's a, it's a Mac. All right. So, 
what am I saying? I'm saying worth is really important. Uh, it's a major internal resource. It doesn't mean arrogance. Actually, as people increase their, their felt sense of worth, they tend to be less of a jerk toward other people. And uh, there are basically two major pathways into growing a healthy sense of worth, the basis of confidence. One pathway comes from the outside in, how others treat us and internalizing that. Other major pathways from the inside out. We recognize our own good qualities. I like the fact that both pathways exist because it gives us more opportunities. And I think some people uh, who tend to be extroverts tend to overestimate um, the um, reliance of people on external sources of worth, on the one hand. On the other hand, if others are caring or valuing or respectful or appreciative uh, or cherishing or prizing, that's a wonderful resource to take in. Um, As we internalize healthy narcissistic supplies, we become less narcissistic because we feel fed from the inside out and our heart becomes less hungry. So how to do that? So I'd like to do a little practice with you about this, all right, as we finish strong today. And I want to talk about a confident heart. So you ready to do a little experiential practice? Okay. So earlier I, we focused on what it is like to feel caring and cared about. Let's kind of warm up that circuitry. Bringing to mind beings you like, you love, you feel loyal to, stand up for, your friends, your pets, children. Warming up the circuits of the heart, feeling caring. And as we've done before, feeling your caringness spreading inside you, bit by bit reinforcing love as a trait. Finding your own forms of caring, different styles, different ways of being caring. Then shifting to a focus on feeling cared about. Feeling like you matter. 
or have mattered to others. Other feelings or thoughts may arise, including opposite feelings. It's okay. Come back to feeling cared about. Perhaps simply a memory of someone who has truly cared about you. Grandparent, teacher, friend. Even if they're no longer alive. It's the experience of being cared about that matters. Allowing the sense of being cared about to move to the back of awareness. Maybe still there in your body. And imagining that you are regarding yourself from a bit of distance. From a bird's eye perspective. And getting a sense of some of your many decent, wholesome qualities, much as you would see them in another person. Another person, a friend like you, doesn't need to be a saint or a hero or special. And you would see so many good qualities capabilities, good intentions, effort, recovery, repair in that other person, in that way, objectively, as best you can, start taking uh, inventory, if you will, of some of your many, many objectively real good qualities. capabilities, talents and skills.
good intentions, longings to help. And as you recognize these true things about yourself, see if that can become feelings of worth, capability, confidence. See if there can be a falling away of any need to impress others or prove yourself. Feeling increasingly assured of your capabilities, strengths, good intentions. It's not about praise or blame. It's about recognizing and feeling assured about your many capabilities. And recognizing the good-heartedness in yourself, the good intentions, the warmth and love In all this, see if you can find a recognition of yourself as a basically good person, much as you would recognize someone like you as a basically good person. 
No need for sainthood. Allowing a relief, a reassurance to spread inside. Acknowledging basic goodness. Feeling it. Letting go of shame, letting go of feeling unworthy, taking as your object of meditation a sense of your all rightness and goodness as you are. Taking the final minute here, exploring what it's like to receive into your sense, self, the reassurance, the assurance of your own worth. Being aware of a falling away, of chasing approval, trying to be impressive, falling away replaced by an assurance of your own worth. If it's meaningful to you as we finish here, you might include the sense of some ground of being, perhaps we could call it, or essence inside, deep nature, true nature, Buddha nature, perhaps shading into something transcendental, the core of your being 
fundamental goodness, beauty, shining through, always shining, no matter what cloud, no matter what clouds over it. Well, quite a journey today, huh? Gonna finish. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's sweet. I'm okay. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So many things uh, we could cover. Just a quick recap, remembering. Key skills we covered, conviction, I mean not conviction, additionally, uh, cultivation, and calming, contentment, confidence, a lot of material around that. And I want to just offer with you as we finish a wider reflection about fullness and balance and the social, if not political, implications. Uh, Deliberately steered away from... uh, you know, thinking about the wider implications, but I'll, I'll leave you with this observation that as individuals grow this unconditional, resilient well-being increasingly over time, this kind of background sense that's increasingly accessible and increasingly pervades their consciousness of a fundamental sense of peaceful strength and contentment and um, happiness and gratitude and also a fundamental sense of being loved and loving. As they grow that, it's really beneficial for them personally, including for physical health and longevity. It's really, it's really good. We would wish that for those we care about. It's okay to wish that for ourselves to grow it. And clearly, as people develop this core inside themselves, they become less vulnerable to the classic manipulations that we've seen throughout history and obviously in our society today, manipulations of fear. We're very vulnerable to manipulations related to fear. Threat level orange. And therefore, we need a strong authoritarian demagogue to protect us. 
Um, also, as people develop this core, they're less vulnerable to the manipulations of greed and consumerism, which um, have all kinds of consequences, including the ways in which that's a major engine uh, leading to global climate change. And also, as people develop this core inside of feeling loved and loving, they're less vulnerable to the manipulations of us-against-rivalries of various kinds that we've seen throughout history. And my own hope that I've written a bit about is that uh, if we can develop a critical mass of human brains, I don't know what it might be, 100 million, a billion, that's my rough tipping point number, a billion brains rested in the green zone most minutes of most days, we can then change the course of human history and help our species and planet come to a softer landing by the end of the century than the one it's currently heading toward. And that's my good hump. Right. So, yeah. So the the personal, as we say back in the old days, the 60s, the old days, which to our children are like the Stone Age. But anyway, you know, before there was Wi-Fi. Um, you know, the personal is the political. And the political, obviously, is the personal. The two don't go together. Creating external conditions that support individuals in the green zone is really important. As we grow more of these strengths inside, we're more able to, to change the world for the better. So as we think about that, you know, finishing it all up, coming home to our resting state, the third noble truth, our home base of peace, contentment, and love. So may you grow the good inside yourself, drop by drop, synapse by synapse for your own sake and for the sake of all other beings. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And sign out if you want CE units and give me your name and email address if you want the slides. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.